Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. If you like American Catholic history, become a supporter at Locals or Patreon. We've got some great perks for supporters, including interviews, gifts, live discussions, and even items we pick up on our pilgrimages and other travels. For more, visit our website, AmericanCatholicHistory.org. Help us keep this going. Also, be sure to give us a five-star rating and a great review wherever you get your podcast, whether Apple or Spotify. These help others to find us. Today, we're talking about the screen legend Gary Cooper. Coop was one of the biggest stars in the golden age of Hollywood, and for a few years, he was the highest paid person in America. Yeah, I've had putting on the Ritz going through my head all week as I've been working on this episode. Dressed up like a million dollar trooper, trying hard to look like Gary Cooper. Super duper. Come on, make sure. Anyway. Yeah, you've been singing it all week. Yes, I can't help it. But Cooper was included in that song just because of how iconic he was even in his own day. He was the picture of strong, understated, classy masculinity. Yeah, Fred Astaire recorded Putting on the Ritz with that lyric in 1930. Cooper was only five years into his film career at that time. He had 31 more years to go, but he was a big star from early on. So you're the film buff. Tell us what made him such a big star and what he did or had that set him apart. Well, when people talk about his acting, the thing people notice the most is how natural he was in his roles. He didn't try to do or be too much. He allowed his own low-key personality to come through the characters he was playing. He relied on the very subtle changes in his own posture, facial expression, and his eyes to communicate what was going on inside. It also helped that he had a wicked sense of humor. He was different, and that that also came through a lot. He was different from most other actors of the time in that he didn't go through stage acting or vaudeville to get to Hollywood. His acting career went straight to the big screen, and this meant that he didn't have to unlearn a lot of techniques that stage actors need to rely on to convey emotion and inner thoughts from the stage. We talk about overacting a lot in that instance, right? He didn't have to do that. Instead, he relied on the camera to pick up the small and subtle motions and changes to yeah. convey emotion and right. other things. Yeah, I saw that some directors said they, they would get frustrated with him because it seemed like while they were shooting that he was hardly acting at all. But when they went back to review the tape, the film, they were blown away by how much he packed into a scene in his understated, slow drawl kind of way. The camera picked up stuff that just wasn't obvious to somebody sitting far away. The legendary actor Lionel Barrymore actually said that Cooper did naturally what it took everyone else many years to learn how to act natural. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this strong yet subtle approach was key in one of Cooper's most significant contributions to cinema. He basically invented the virtuous, duty-driven, shy hero archetype of the American Western. And it all came from his own upbringing in the rugged ranch lands of Montana. Yes, and this really was his own persona. He was a man of few words, and those words often included shucks or just a yup. Later in life, he said, if others have more interesting things to say than I have, I keep quiet. So let's tell his story a bit. First, he wasn't born Gary. No, he was born Frank James Cooper in Helena, Montana on May 7th, 1901. His parents were immigrants from England, but they got married in Montana. They were Anglican, 
His father was a prominent lawyer and eventually was a justice on the Montana Supreme Court. Frank and his older brother Arthur grew up in Helena with lots of time spent on the family's 600-acre ranch north of town. This time hunting, fishing, riding horses, and generally doing awesome outdoor things served him very well in his later acting career. He also got to know one of our favorite people from American Catholic history, Mary Fields, better known as Stagecoach Mary. We talked about her way back in episode 12. And actually, a lot of what we learned about her came from a long biographical article that Coop had written about her for Ebony Magazine in 1959. You should definitely listen to that episode to hear about one of the most unique people you've ever met. Yeah, when Frank was eight, his mother took him and Arthur over to England so that they could receive a good formal English education. While there, he developed the social graces and the sense of decorum that he would be known for. And, and while there, he was confirmed in the Anglican faith. He returned to America in 1912, where he went to high school in Helena, and continued spending lots of time outdoors on the ranch. In fact, he dropped out of high school to become a full-time cowboy on his dad's ranch. But while in high school, he developed a love of art, especially drawing and painting. When he finally went to college in 1922, it was to continue his art education. But while he learned a lot more about art, his time in college was short. In 1924, he moved to Los Angeles when his parents moved there. A friend, a fellow cowboy, was working as an extra and stunt double on some low-budget Western genre films, and he invited Frank to join him. Frank figured it was a good way to earn a few bucks to pay for art lessons, so he started into films as an extra. Within a year, his skills as a horseman led to more and more offers, and he was hooked. He hired an agent, Nan Collins. Collins told him that there were other Frank Coopers looking for acting jobs, so he'd better change his name. She was originally from Gary, Indiana, a very singable city name, you know. <laughs> so she suggested Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana. Anyway, Cooper liked it and adopted Gary Cooper as his working name. His first major break was in a supporting role in The Winning of Barbara Worth in 1926. In it, he plays a cowboy. Imagine that. From the first, his natural ease in the role gave him an authenticity that just jumped off the screen. Almost immediately, he went from success to success. In 1927, he landed roles in two films, including Wings, which was the first film to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. His appearance in Wings was short, just one scene. But one studio executive said that when he appeared, the screen just lit up. Everyone knew they were looking at an emerging star. His star began to shine in 1929 when he was cast in the title role in his first talking picture, The Virginian. And this film was the film in which he really defined that tall, shy, duty-bound lawman character. And when I say tall, Cooper was 6'3". Over the next two years, he starred in 10 films, which is just an insane pace of work. Yeah, but it wasn't unfortunately just the films that kept him busy. The strong but quiet and virtuous character he played on screen didn't fully carry over into his offset life. No, and this was a problem throughout his life. Since his star was rising so fast, Paramount Studio, who held his contract, kept pairing him with up-and-coming female lead actresses. And in many cases... The relationship they played at on screen carried over into their private lives. Cooper had many illicit relationships with many of his co-stars starting early on. With all of this happening so quickly, he became utterly exhausted and just left Hollywood for a tour of Europe and Africa in 1931. He just needed time away. He spent a year in Italy and on safari in Africa before returning to America and Hollywood. 
But he didn't just return to Hollywood. No, in 1933, he met his future wife, Veronica Balfe, who was the debutante stepdaughter of a Wall Street tycoon. She was a refined and well-heeled young woman, 12 years younger than Cooper. But she was also a champion skeet shooter. Her education very much included outdoor athletics. Yes, the two shared a love of the outdoors and outdoor activities, so the match was a good one. She was Catholic, and they were married in a private ceremony at her family's Park Avenue residence in December of 1933. Cooper was 32 at the time, and Rocky, as she was known, was 20. Getting married was a very good thing for Cooper. He finally found love, not just passion. He left behind his philandering ways and was a good husband. When their daughter Maria came along, Cooper was a doting and devoted father. As Maria grew, Cooper helped her learn to ride a bike, ride a horse, ski, and all kinds of outdoor activity. Meantime, his career advanced significantly in the 1930s. He starred in a number of important roles which showed his versatility, not just westerns. One was the Frank Capra classic, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Capra said that he only thought of Cooper for the role. He said Cooper's, aw shucks, everyman goodness, was exactly what he thought of when he thought of Longfellow Deeds. And once he conceived of all-American good guy Gary Cooper playing the role, he could not think of anyone else. Cooper also starred in A Farewell to Arms, the first of two movies he made based on books by Ernest Hemingway. The other was For Whom the Bell Tolls, released in 1943. Interestingly, Hemingway had based the main character of that book, Robert Jordan, on the persona of Gary Cooper, so casting him in the role was only too obvious. Cooper and Hemingway met in 1940, the year the book was published, and they became good friends. They went on hunting, fishing, and skiing trips together many times over the next 20 years, and Cooper valued his friend's input and guidance. Another great friend of his was the other major icon of manliness and Western courage of the day, John Wayne. We talked about John Wayne in episode 105. This friendship yielded a great Oscars moment in 1953. Cooper was up for best actor for his role in the classic High Noon. John Wayne had turned down that role for political reasons. It was lightly seen as sort of a anti-McCarthy movie. But Cooper was in Europe filming a movie, so he couldn't be at the ceremony. John Wayne agreed to accept on his behalf if he won, which he did. Everyone in the room knew why Wayne didn't get the role, but Wayne still joked about having a talk with his agent about why he didn't get High Noon. But there was more going on during the filming of High Noon than Met the Eye, which we'll talk about in a moment. The Oscar for High Noon was his second win. The first had come in 1942 when he played the lead in Sergeant York, the biographical film about the simple Tennessee hillbilly boy who had a religious conversion and then became one of the most highly decorated soldiers in World War One. Once again, it was a role tailor-made for his down-home, understated way of acting and his easy ruggedness. Yeah, absolutely. His acting career did have some bombs, but considering that he made 84 feature-length films in his 36 years of acting, his body of work includes many, many more hits than misses. In fact, in the late 30s, when he was making films for two different studios, he was the highest paid person in America. I'll mention two other important films that people should see before we move on to more of his personal life and religious conversion. First was the other Frank Capra film he starred in, Meet John Doe, which he accepted before even looking at the script because it was a Frank Capra film and Cooper trusted Capra, kind of like Jimmy Stewart. Also important is The Pride of the Yankees, in which he plays Lou Gehrig. And Gary Cooper delivering Lou Gehrig's famous 
luckiest man alive speech really is a perfect image, all things considered. Mm -hmm. So his personal life through the 1940s and into the 1950s is more or less what we've already discussed. He had problems with philandering in his 20s and into his 30s. Then he got married and became faithful for a decade. That ended in 1942 while filming For Whom the Bell Tolls. His co-star was Ingrid Bergman. That fling lasted about a year, but Rocky seemed not to find out about it. She did, however, find out about the next one. This was Patricia Neal, Cooper's co-star on The Fountainhead in 1948 and 49. The affair with Neal lasted two years, and Gary seriously considered leaving Rocky for Neal. He even took Neal on a trip to Cuba to visit his old pal Ernest Hemingway, hoping to get Hemingway's blessing on this relationship with Neal. No dice. Hemingway did not approve. The affair lasted for about a year after this. Neal actually became pregnant with Cooper's child. Cooper, however, prevailed upon Neal to have an abortion, which he paid for. Rocky found out about Gary's affair with Neil and confronted Gary, demanding to know if it was true. To his credit, he admitted all. But this caused a major rift in their marriage. In 1951, Rocky and Gary legally separated, and Gary moved out of their family home. They remained separated for three years, but neither sought a divorce. During this time apart, Gary was not happy. He looked for solace in the arms of yet more glamorous women, but nothing doing. He was miserable. He developed painful ulcers. And it was during this painful and angst-ridden part of his life that he filmed High Noon. Now, if you think about the plot of High Noon and Gary Cooper's method of bringing his own personality into his roles, you'll see why this role at this time in his life resulted in an Oscar. The main character is a small-town lawman who recently got married to a Quaker. Now he has to face down an entire gang of outlaws who are coming for him at High Noon, Cooper's character has to face him alone because the whole town and even his wife have abandoned him and think he should run away. Driven by his sense of honor and duty, he cannot. It's a tense film and Cooper portrays the doubt and angst to perfection. Again, considering what was going on in his life and with his health, that should surprise no one. In 1954, Gary and Rocky managed a reconciliation. Gary pledged to try to do better, and Rocky accepted and forgave. Gary moved back into the family home. The reconciliation followed a rather significant event in the family's life. Yes. In 1953, Cooper, Rocky, and their daughter Maria went to Europe together for a promotional tour for High Noon. While in Rome, they had an audience with Pope Pius XII. Rocky and Maria were, of course, Catholic. Gary was still nominally Anglican, but he hadn't been particularly religious most of his life. He'd go to Mass with his wife and daughter on Christmas and Easter, but that was pretty much it. Now here he was in a room with the Pope. His daughter says her father had brought along a whole bunch of rosaries, medals, and other sacramentals and mementos to give to friends back in Hollywood, and due to back problems and an old hip injury, he had difficulty genuflecting. When he went down, he spilled his entire package of items to be blessed, and there he was on his hands and knees picking everything up when the white cassock and scarlet shoes got to him. He managed to write himself in time for a very nice photo to be taken. This meeting had a definite impact on his life. He didn't change overnight, but it marked a beginning of a change. He began going to Mass with Rocky and Maria every week, not just on Christmas and Easter, he and Rocky would discuss the erudite and funny sermons of Father Harold Ford, their parish priest. Maria called Father Ford a man's man and said her dad called him 
Father Tough stuff. Eventually, the Coopers invited Father Ford over for dinner, and Gary and Father developed a friendship. Initially, their discussions were about guns, hunting, fishing, and scuba diving, unexpected territory as far as Rocky and Maria were concerned, but exactly what Gary needed to open the doors. The talks did drift into the more sacred realm, of course, and eventually the two men were meeting, just the two of them, for chats. It took many years, but over the course of the 1950s, Cooper did drift into the Catholic way of being. By the end of the decade, he was ready to make the leap, and on April 9, 1959, he came into full communion with the church, being provisionally baptized and then confirmed. Later that year, reflecting on his conversion, he said, I'd spent all my waking hours doing almost exactly what I, personally, wanted to do, and what I wanted to do wasn't always the most polite thing, either. This past winter, I began to dwell a little more on what's been in my mind for a long time and thought, Coop, old boy, you owe somebody something for all your good fortune. I guess that's what started me thinking seriously about my religion. I'll never be anything like a saint, I know. I just haven't got that kind of fortitude. The only thing I can say for me is that I'm trying to be a little better. Maybe I'll succeed. Well, he was given the chance. These later years were some of the most difficult, but also the happiest of his life. The last major role Gary Cooper played in his life was that of a gracious sufferer. In early 1960, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. In April, he underwent surgery. The cancer had spread to his colon. In December of 1960, the diagnosis came back that the cancer had spread even further into his bones and lungs. There was nothing more that could be done. It was only a matter of time, likely just a few months. The Coopers, however, still did not want his illness to be publicly known. In April of 1961, Jimmy Stewart stepped to the podium at the Academy Awards to accept a Lifetime Achievement Award on Cooper's behalf. And accepting it, he lamented that his dear friend was unable to be there in person, and he all but said out loud that Cooper was dying of cancer. The outpouring of concern was swift. Messages of concern came in from all over. Even Queen Elizabeth and Pope John XXIII sent notes. President Kennedy called personally, but his call took more than a day to get through because of how jammed the phone lines were. Visitors to the Cooper home came with anguish in their hearts and tears on their faces, but all of their tears were undone by Cooper's own peace and joy. He received visitors in a bright robe and stylish pajamas. The home was bright with flowers and pleasant music playing. He assured his mourners that he was okay. One visitor during this time was an up-and-coming new star, a young woman named Dolores Hart. Hart had starred in Where the Boys Are and was poised for a major Catholic conversion moment of her own. She, of course, left acting to become a Benedictine nun and, since 1963, has been a nun at the Regina Lattice Abbey in Connecticut. We told that story way back when, also. Mm -hmm. She is now known as Mother Dolores Hart, and we'll tell her story, too, in the future. Hart recalled visiting Cooper during his illness. When she asked how he was doing, he took her hand and said, No, Miss Dolores, I want to know how you are. Have you gotten any work? His peace in his last days came from his Catholic faith. He found great comfort in reception of the sacraments, especially the Blessed Sacrament. He found solace in reading Bishop Fulton Sheen's Peace of Soul. He told his friends, I know that what is happening is God's will. I am not afraid of the future. He died on May 13, 1961, and after his funeral mass, he was buried in Holy Cross Cemetery in Culver City. Ultimately, Gary Cooper, the all-American good guy with a significant moral weakness, 
realized what Lou Gehrig had, that he had been incredibly blessed in his life, and that no matter what bad break he experienced later in life, he had a lot to be thankful for. Based on the way he suffered through his final illness and how dearly he embraced the solace of his Catholic faith, it's safe to say Gary Cooper did succeed in becoming, as he had hoped, a little bit better. This has been American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by the StarQuest Production Network. If you enjoy American Catholic History, become a supporter on Locals or Patreon. Get information about both and the perks of being a supporter at AmericanCatholicHistory.org support. Also on our website, sign up for our newsletter, learn more about Gary Cooper, see our upcoming pilgrimages, and find other episodes. And be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. We love getting your feedback and suggestions for episodes. You can email us at feedback at AmericanCatholicHistory.org. Find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash AmericanCatholicHistory, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow us on Twitter at ACH1513. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by StarQuest.